welcome to Allergy Times. I'm Dr. Zachary Rubin, an allergist and clinical immunologist at Oakbrook Allergists in DuPage County, Illinois, and this episode will be all things anaphylaxis. I've received many questions from my patients and from folks on Twitter regarding this subject, so for my first full-length episode, I believe this is a timely and relevant topic to go over. What is anaphylaxis? This is a serious, generalized allergic reaction that occurs rapidly and may cause death. I say generalized because it involves two or more organ systems of the body. I say rapidly because this occurs within minutes to a few hours. This is a dramatic process that's associated with various mechanisms, triggers, symptoms, and severity. There are still many questions left to be answered regarding anaphylaxis. In this episode, I will provide you with as much relevant information as possible that's suitable for the general public, but also some notes for healthcare professionals. How common is anaphylaxis? The lifetime prevalence, meaning the proportion of people who at some point in their life develop anaphylaxis, is estimated to be between 1 to 5%. So, in the United States, that's somewhere between 3 to 16 million people. While anaphylaxis can be fatal, it's not very common. Fatal cases of anaphylaxis in the United States and the UK occur in approximately 0.5 cases per 1 million people. To put this into an everyday perspective, in 2018, there were 11.2 deaths per 100,000 people due to car crashes in the United States. The three most common causes of fatal anaphylaxis are due to drugs, insect stings, and food. Keep in mind that vaccines are not in the top three. As of this podcast, no one has died from anaphylaxis due to the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines in the United States. Food and insect stings are the most common causes of anaphylaxis in children and teens, but medications and insect stings are the most common causes in adults. What is the actual mechanism of anaphylaxis? What is the process or pathophysiology of this disease? This is actually very complicated, and we don't fully understand this for every case. The classic mechanism that's well described is caused by a protein named IgE, which is an antibody produced by your immune system. Think of this as the allergy antibody. In order for this process to occur, initial exposure to an allergic trigger, such as food, causes production of the specific IgE antibody. This process is known as sensitization. Upon subsequent exposure to the allergic trigger, the allergen combines with the specific IgE antibody on cells of your immune system called mast cells and basophils to trigger the release of many chemical messengers, leading to the clinical picture of anaphylaxis. Chemicals that you may be familiar with in this process include histamine and tryptase, However, there are many others, including carboxypeptidases, chymase, platelet activating factor, prostaglandins, leukotrienes, etc. and so forth. Anaphylaxis may be caused by another protein in your immune system called complement, spelled C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T. This should not be confused with that word meaning a polite expression of praise. There are other mechanisms that may cause a direct activation of mast cells as well. Narcotics may be a trigger in this type of medication. 
in many cases, we may not be able to figure out the trigger or the mechanism for anaphylaxis. We call this idiopathic anaphylaxis. If there is such a wide array of triggers and mechanisms for anaphylaxis, then it should not be surprising that the clinical presentation of anaphylaxis would be diverse as well. This makes diagnosing anaphylaxis more challenging, especially because confirmatory lab testing is not very sensitive nor readily available. There are diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis that was published in 2006 by a workgroup comprising of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and the Food Allergy and Anaphylaxis Network. I'm going to go over these criteria. They're pretty lengthy, so just bear with me for a moment. It states that anaphylaxis is highly likely when either one of the following scenarios are met. The first would be a sudden onset of illness with skin and or mucosal tissue involvement. That may show up as hives, swelling, generalized itching, and or swollen lips or tongue, plus either sudden problems with breathing, such as shortness of breath, wheezing or coughing, or a sudden drop in blood pressure may result in symptoms of end organ damage like passing out or incontinence. Another scenario would be when two or more of the following occur quickly after exposure to a likely trigger. These would be either sudden changes, as mentioned previously, in the skin, sudden breathing issues, reduced blood pressure, symptoms of end organ damage, or sudden gastrointestinal problems like vomiting. The last scenario would be when blood pressure drops suddenly after exposure to a known allergen for that individual. Now that's a mouthful. To be clear, these criteria are not all-encompassing. For example, if a child develops hives all over their body after accidentally ingesting a food they're allergic to, then treating this child for anaphylaxis would be appropriate. Foodallergy.org has a wonderful anaphylaxis emergency handout that reviews this information. If you have been prescribed an epinephrine auto-injector, please have this type of handout available and review it on a regular basis so that you're empowered to know how to treat anaphylaxis. Now, with this understanding of the mechanisms as well as the signs and symptoms of anaphylaxis, my next statement I will make very clear because there is an international consensus on this. The first line of treatment for anaphylaxis is epinephrine. I'll say that again. The first line of treatment for anaphylaxis is epinephrine. When in doubt, use epinephrine. When in doubt, use epinephrine. This is the medicine that treats anaphylaxis the fastest. It treats low blood pressure, hives, swelling, and problems breathing. Epinephrine can also prevent further release of histamine and other mediators, so it can help prevent further escalation of problems. Therefore, the faster epi is given, the less likely that problems will develop. Antihistamines are effective at treating symptoms related to the skin. However, this medication does not treat cardiovascular or respiratory symptoms effectively. In fact, when taken by mouth, antihistamines may start working within 30 minutes, but its peak concentrations take 60 to 90 minutes. Systemic steroids take even longer to start working, so they should not be used before or in place of epinephrine. There's not enough evidence to suggest that antihistamines and systemic steroids prevent biphasic anaphylaxis. 
What does biphasic anaphylaxis mean? This is when anaphylaxis occurs again even after the initial episode resolves, even if the inciting trigger is not present. Most cases occur within the first four to eight hours after the initial episode of anaphylaxis resolves. There's no consensus on how long someone should be observed in an emergency room, but it's reasonable to monitor people for four hours if their symptoms are relatively mild and six to eight hours for those with respiratory problems. It's reasonable to be hospitalized for observation in cases requiring multiple doses of epinephrine, patients with a history of asthma and are wheezing, and those with a history of biphasic anaphylaxis. Now, if you or a loved one is suspected of experiencing anaphylaxis, treat with your epinephrine autoinjector as soon as possible. I know there's a lot of fear surrounding using an injectable medicine. There are concerns that this medicine may cause significant injury. There are fears that the medicine will not be used correctly. Sometimes, people are not aware of the symptoms of anaphylaxis right away. Healthcare professionals can be guilty of this too because it's not a clear-cut diagnosis. There is this misconception that mild symptoms are not anaphylaxis when anaphylaxis is actually happening. Sometimes people will get treated with an antihistamine first for mild symptoms, and this can mask early signs of anaphylaxis. Another misconception is that someone with a history of mild anaphylaxis will not have a severe episode. This is simply not true. Now, there are risk factors for severe anaphylaxis, which includes a history of cardiovascular disease, asthma, older age, and use of medications that include ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. Infants and teenagers are uniquely vulnerable to anaphylaxis because of issues regarding under-recognition and under-treatment. One of my Twitter followers asked me, how can we educate teenagers more about the importance of carrying their epinephrine auto-injector? Adolescence is a particularly challenging time, and we know that teens are less likely to use their auto-injector, let alone carry it. There are many ways we can help our teens. First, communication with teens should be open and non-judgmental. I know it's easy to get frustrated, but we must remain patient. We should be educating teens early and often. While parents are the first-line teachers in this case, primary care physicians and allergists should take a role in educating teens regarding epinephrine use and the importance of carrying their devices. Teens should be encouraged to talk about their epinephrine auto-injector with their friends. This will help normalize what they're experiencing and make it less embarrassing for them. No teen should feel embarrassed by their life experiences. Also, try to find an epinephrine auto-injector that can be easy for them to hold on to. I've had a few people on Twitter also ask me, why are EpiPens so expensive? Look, I'm not an expert in healthcare economics, but I can tell you this. Mylan is the company that produces EpiPens. About four years ago, the main competitor to EpiPen, the AviQ, went off the market due to a recall. This left EpiPen with practically a monopoly and allowed the price to skyrocket. AviQ is back in the market, but the price of EpiPens is still too expensive for many people. While a lot of insurance plans have a high deductible, I don't feel this is an excuse for this life-saving medicine to be so expensive. The price of the drug itself is dirt cheap. Another question that one of my Twitter followers asked me was, what do you do next after you give Epi in the field? Well, call 911 and get to the nearest emergency room. 
There's several reasons for this. The main ones are that individuals receiving epi may need more than one dose, and there's up to a 20% chance that they will experience biphasic anaphylaxis, so it's best to be under close medical supervision for at least the first four hours after an episode. Lastly, I'm going to switch gears to talk about anaphylaxis in the context of the COVID-19 vaccines. I know this is on the minds of many people, so I want to shed some light on the important issues at hand. The mRNA COVID-19 vaccines were approved under emergency use authorization in December of last year. As you are already aware, there are two products in the United States, which are Pfizer and Moderna. Since then, there have been reports blasted throughout various media outlets of severe allergic reactions to the COVID-19 vaccines. If you may recall, the mechanisms of anaphylaxis are diverse and not always known for every case. Currently, we don't know why people have experienced anaphylaxis to these vaccines. One proposed theory is that people are sensitive to the polyethylene glycol, which I'll call PEG for short, or potentially the substance called polysorbates. These are substances that help make drugs and vaccines more water-soluble. PEG has never been used in a vaccine before, but polysorbates have been used in vaccines. For example, polysorbate can be found in the influenza vaccine, hepatitis A vaccine, and the HPV vaccine. These substances have different molecular weights, which is noted by a number in the name. For example, Miralax is a common laxative used that contains PEG-3350. The Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines contain PEG-2000, so it has a lower molecular weight. The AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines do not contain PEG, but they have polysorbate 80. In reviewing the scientific literature, I found that PEG allergy is very rare. There were less than 50 reported cases since the 1980s. Allergists are actively looking into this situation, and there was a great article published by Dr. Banerjee and colleagues in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice that outlines our current thoughts on this issue. Here's the good news, though. As more and more people are getting vaccinated, the rate of anaphylaxis is dropping. Initially, the CDC reported that anaphylaxis was detected 21 times after the first 1.9 million doses given, for a rate of 11.1 cases per 1 million doses given. This is still rare. However, the most recent report from JAMA showed that there were 47 cases of anaphylaxis detected after the first 10 million doses administered to the Pfizer vaccine, for a rate of 4.7 cases per 1 million doses given, and for the Moderna vaccine, there were 19 cases of anaphylaxis after the first 7.5 million doses administered, for a rate of 2.5 cases per 1 million doses given. So far, no one has died from anaphylaxis due to the COVID-19 vaccines. Again, let's put this into perspective with driving a car. In 2018, there were 11.2 deaths per 100,000 people due to car crashes in the United States. That doesn't stop you from driving a car, does it? Now, a lot of people have been asking me lately whether they can safely get the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm going to address some questions that were posed to me recently. One person asked, Is the first or second dose of the mRNA vaccine more likely to cause anaphylaxis? Of the 66 cases of anaphylaxis reported so far, 54 were from the first dose. 
I'm not sure at this time why this is occurring more often after the first dose, but we're still learning about the risk factors and mechanisms surrounding these mRNA vaccines. Another person wrote, If someone has a reaction to COVID vaccine requiring epi or hospitalization, what happens to them if they are later exposed to coronavirus? Can they have an allergic-type reaction again? This is a great question. Anaphylaxis does not necessarily prevent the vaccine from generating an immune response. So depending on your situation, you can still have some level of protection against COVID-19. Exposure to COVID-19 in the future will not cause an allergic reaction in this case, and the active ingredient in these vaccines is mRNA, which is also not able to cause an allergic reaction. Another person asks me, Patients with prior systemic reactions like angioedema without airway compromise, should they avoid the Pfizer vaccine? Should people who suffer Hymenoptera allergy avoid the vaccine as well? These all fall under the category of whether someone is able to safely get the COVID-19 vaccines. If you look at the FDA package inserts for the vaccines, it states that people should not get the vaccine if they are allergic to any component in the vaccine. For these mRNA vaccines, that's basically the PEG and the polysorbate components. There's no food, antibiotics, or significant preservatives in this vaccine, so people with food allergy, drug allergy, or insect venom allergy can receive this vaccine. The CDC has recommended that everyone be observed for 15 minutes after the vaccine as a precaution. Approximately 75% of the reported cases of anaphylaxis occurred within the first 15 minutes after the vaccine was administered. Now, if you have a history of anaphylaxis or immediate allergic reaction to other vaccines or injectable medicines, then you should wait 30 minutes after the vaccine as a precaution. Approximately 90% of the cases of anaphylaxis to the COVID-19 vaccines occurred within the first 30 minutes after the injection. So with that, I thank you so much for listening to me talk about anaphylaxis. It's definitely a confusing topic, but I hope this gives you some comfort knowing that this type of reaction is very rare in regard to the COVID-19 vaccine. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to future episodes of this podcast. I'm aiming for weekly episodes. Feel free to send me questions or ideas for future episodes on my Twitter account at Ruben underscore allergy. That's R-U-B-I-N underscore allergy. Remember folks, the world of allergy is very common and confusing and I'm happy to clear up that confusion along the way. Take care.